These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. subject of providing stories that can encourage the American people along a specific changing status quo, there is a limitation into what people will accept at what point. And one of the big revelations of this chapter is sort of related to that, because we suddenly find out that Tabitha and Abigail were intimate at some point during the previous year of experiences. This plot point was so unexpected that even with all the background details from both Secret Room's Definitive Edition and the foreshadowing of a potential pairing of Abby and Harry in this book, I didn't see it coming. Sure, one could argue that I just missed it. I'm kind of infamous by now for having read things too fast and missing details. But my first encounter with Secret Rooms was the updated audio drama, and not the book. That meant that I was taking the story in at a more measured speed, and had the added benefit of the voice acting talents of Maureen and Sharon. But if I didn't see it coming, then naturally I had to turn to my co-host for his opinion, since he had taken in the original Secret Rooms before the added chapters with Lucy. Well, I'd actually be curious to hear from you whether or not Abigail pursuing a relationship with Tabitha came as a shock to you back during your original reading of the story. Oh, it absolutely did surprise me. It's Mm. like at least sort of like, oh, that happened. But as soon as that like immediate shock happened, it was sort of, yeah, no, that makes sense. (laughs) That sort of feeling of it where... Like you say, the original version of Secret Rooms I had was absent that key detail of Abigail's like past and her like adolescence. So when you get that, it provides a context. And it's kind of gratifying that she has had a connection and a relationship with a woman that, knocking on wood, has not resulted in tragedy. I think it's good that this was something that she has experienced without there being some sort of remorse or pang associated with it. And if she was to end up with any woman, I guess it was appropriate that it was Tabitha all along. (laughs) Uh, And you took me by surprise with that one. I did not see that one coming. Um, (laughs) When this happened during my initial imbibing of Steamheart as a story, I went back to secret rooms to see if I could see the hints at that, Mm. the way Abigail and Harry's interest in each other have been hinted all throughout Steamheart. There just appears to be nothing like there's some deep, deep subtext in the voice acting itself that might Mm. suggest that Abigail and Tabitha are interested in each other. But as far as the text of the story, a a cold reading of the words itself is probably not enough to Hmm. hint 
at a potential deeper intimate relationship between the two. It's something that you find yourself double checking your reading when you first find out. It's like, wait, did I miss something? Was that like something that mm. they did actually really pin down? But at the same time, whether or not this aspect of their time spent together during their interaction in secret rooms was planned from the beginning or if it was just something that was a happy opportunity of like, yeah, you know what? This makes complete sense. Let's have that play a part of it. Truthfully, either way, it's immaterial. It works as an extra wrinkle to their relationship that we weren't made privy to. And it also, as you mentioned before, like it reinforces this impression that relationships, encounters and flings like this between women or just like anything on the LGBTQ plus spectrum, it's not non-existent in this historical setting. They kept quiet about it, both to the reader and within the story. It keeps a low profile in a climate and time that would generally not be accepting to it. But we shouldn't confuse that with thinking it's not happening at all. It's a moment that catches us off guard, and yet it doesn't come across as all that unbelievable. Did you ever watch the movie Bound? Which I know the the Shaws did a, a show on recently. I listened through the show and like it was a great show that gave me an appreciation of a film that was just not on my radar. So I have a knowledge of it, but not like a firsthand experience with it. I remember from the conversation that there were moments that were exceptionally erotic without anything sexual actually happening. And so mm. to a certain extent, it does make me go back to chapter nine and look at certain aspects where they're fumbling around with the crystallized jam or the discussion at the end where supposedly Abigail is helping Tabitha tune a piano and wonder if there's deep, deep subtext that there <laughs> is some kind of closeness between the two that is barely being hinted at you can only see through this new revelation that the two of them shacked up possibly well, during that time in Elkview. well i now know what the fan fiction that expands <laughs> on that is going to be called and it's piano tuning um. <laughs> <laughs> i'm also finding it really ironic here that we keep managing to find relevant talking points within just this conversation, because this revelation is the centerpiece for Harry working out, as we alluded to long ago at this point, her own desires and trying to deal with it. Therefore, this is her opportunity to externalize the stuff that's going on in her own head with someone that she feels safe discussing it with. I, I have to wonder if I went back over this conversation a couple of times and the fact that Tabitha is willing to admit to her relationship with Abigail makes me wonder if Harry's innocent seeming questions were giving off incredible gay vibes to Tabitha that she chooses to volunteer this information, allowing the two of them to have this conversation that two people wouldn't generally have. Like that early encounter between Tabitha and Abby, I feel like there might be body language that we can't see that would provide those people looking for it with the hints that show a similarity of mind frame. My own gaydar is for shit. 
but let me be honest, so is my ability to know someone is into me at all, male or female. Someone would literally have to hit me over the head to get me to realize they were flirting with me. Someone did, in fact. As I love to say, we're all pattern-matching machines. The only difference is the patterns we're good at matching. Like, in that moment, she is, like, admitting even before Tabitha volunteers the information, but I think it's just a means of easing the rest of the conversation. It's like, relax, kid, it's okay. Yes, <laughs> like, we hooked up. Think you could, too. Mm-hmm. Go on. It'll be fun. But, um... <laughs> Yeah, so this is the worst kept secret in Through the Window. Harry is gay and it's great. <laughs> like, just a number of times we were like, oh, this also hits at this thing. Wake, wake, nudge, nudge. We've all. We call them ever... like we see them. Yes, but all the way back from the beginning, and again, we this is leading to the stuff we've already talked about today. We've had a hard time keeping secret that there was nothing to talk about in regards to certain events in the books we were discussing and how they would reflect on later stuff. Mm-hmm. But as we've been talking about Steamheart, given how blatant some of this stuff is, it would feel weird for us to not bring it up as a deep dive mm. on individual chapters. Oh yeah, yes, like, this sticks out like a story thumb, just sort of chaining these individual moments together as it leads up to this chapter, the quote unquote big reveal. There are some plot developments and character growth like details that you could definitely consider something as like a sort of spoiler, but I don't feel like this is something that spoils the story to be able to read this into her character ahead of time. Mm-hmm. It's just something that we're able to appreciate even more so that we're noting it now. So is that me covering my own ass? Maybe, but <laughs> I definitely really appreciate like just having a character like Harry here. It's a great thing to be at this point in the story. And I will say props to Harry for the balls to just be able to go in and be like, okay, so this woman is in labor. I'm going to ask her for some pointers. Like, just, I mean, well, fair play, it, it works out. It is intriguing that she chooses Tabitha to talk to, which can only make me think Terry has some sort of nascent gaydar of her own, because she doesn't go to Annie, even though the two of them clearly have uh, a positive relationship that we see right at the beginning of this story. Mm. And she hasn't apparently talked with her mother about this but she does talk about it with tabitha which means that there's some kind of potential signaling going on that both of them are picking up on being like oh yes someone like me well i think the moment when abigail was like so you were pregnant when we and like leaves that hanging fruit there which is quite easy to pick up on if Harry has probably been like looking for any and all signs that Abigail might reciprocate any feelings that she might have for her, then hearing that would definitely be like ears perked up. So I think it, this is one of those things of I'm going to go in and just confirm that I heard that right. It does speak to the fact that Harry can pay attention to the world around her when it relates to something that's important to her. It's just the thing that's important to her is usually, quote-unquote, her babies. Steamheart being the biggest one of them. Although, 
<laughs> oh, yeah, babies. Mm, yeah, were we just talking about babies for a second there? But I guess as this bottled up need in her is becoming more and more prevalent, being around someone that clearly does it for her in that way, she needed to talk about it with somebody because mm. even though she's bold enough to bring it up to Tabitha, she's apparently not bold enough to bring it up to just anybody or even potentially to pursue it with Abigail, just sort of mm. like, you know, shooting her shot, so to speak. Well, first of all, like, even if there was someone who might be like, have a decent chance of being a good person to talk through this with, She's on this months-long road trip with them crammed in a tight space. She doesn't want to miscalculate and then be stuck there with them. She is a creator, so as the saying goes, measure twice, cut once. Mm. Tabitha is someone who they are not going to be likely to take her for the full duration of the journey. And that's another reason why she does come and talk with her while she's in labor, because this might be her one shot. Also, just her other options are Abigail, that's a huge leap that would be difficult for her to do. James, who she knows that there is this thing between them and she has to ask him before she approaches Tabitha, like, are you going to be married someday? It's like mm -hmm. she has to confirm that. So she can't like talk with him about it. Raven, I think she likes, but is a difficult person to talk with about this. And also just... The nature of it, she would want to probably talk with another woman about this with. Truth be told, I can't actually think of one time that Raven and Harry ever interacted, before the journey or during. There's a big upcoming conversation on Raven that I don't want to spoil. But going off the information we currently have, it's entirely possible that he is deliberately keeping his distance. I mean, we can already see that whenever possible... Raven is keeping his distance from the entire team. But as a self-described, not a personable person, I think that maybe he subconsciously worries about causing harm. There is something dark inside him that flared to life back in that bar when he faced off against Thomas. That's a side of him the rest of the crew might be able to handle, but in particular after Harry only just recovered from losing her parents, it could well be that Raven doesn't want to take any chances. Yeah. So that leaves Annie, and both Frank and Annie have been very kind to her, but they made the incorrect assumption during the ball that she was looking over at James and set her up to mm, dance with James. Yeah. So it's sort of like, hmm, I don't know if these guys are the ones who will get it. It's a very show-don't-tell thing, in that Harry does apparently have some degree of understanding of people to be able to suss all this stuff out on her own. We don't usually give her credit for that because she seems disconnected from what's going on there. But clearly, she is paying attention to things off in her own little corner and just not necessarily revealing just, you know, the fact that she's able to put together these blueprints from all of the evidence mm. that she's provided. That's also the other thing. She needs to like put blueprints together on this. Her exact wording with Tabitha is that like she's a mechanic. She learns. That's mm -hmm. like she wants to be able to like get the informed take on it. And so while Jeremy might actually, in many ways, have been a good person to talk this through with, because 
he has also had to navigate a life mm. of having a, what society has deemed an unstandard mode of existence with like the people that he loves. He won't have that level of informed knowledge of the mechanical specifics of you know loving another woman and making love with, with another woman. That's why I think Tabitha is her best shot. Tabitha even knows Abigail, the woman that Harry is crushing on. I can even almost imagine Harry taking these variables into her mindscape, and when all the relevant pieces fit together almost too perfectly, this is an opportunity she had to take advantage of. It's a great little development, and it's also, I think, really cool to have this after everything with Harry and her parents. like. She pours so much into her work and her craft and her abilities as a mechanic and as a pilot, but there's more to her. And it's also cool not only to have it be this person who is a person of colour, but it's someone who has been established to be on the spectrum in some way. Mm -hmm. And it's really good to show that, yes, just because she has a fixation, as you say, on the things that interest her... That doesn't mean that it's impossible for the things that interest her to not also be another person. So that's great. That's great to see. Also, it just makes me wish... It's unlikely to be something we're ever going to get, but I'm suddenly wanting to see a little bit of the courtship between Jeremy and Donald, because you know that's got to be adorable. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I'm trying to suss out who would have approached who first. Probably mm. Jeremy. I think that Donald would have said, it's like, yeah, relax, you're cute. Like, she's <laughs> like, oh, well, great. <laughs> just, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> Very well always acted there. I could definitely see Jeremy saying those things. On a side note, anyone that is interested in exploring a very inclusive dating sim with the healthiest of political commentary and amazing voice acting I am continuing to shill for a game that recently came out, Arcade Spirits, The New Challengers. The original was already a good game that I recommend, but this one outdoes itself, because not only is the cast racially diverse, it includes a non-binary character, a disabled character, and a neurodivergent character in its dating pool. You can even choose to date none of them, if you just want to develop cool friendships, or want a story reflecting ace options. One of the last aspects of how Tabitha being present is a character development moment is for James. One of the things we glossed over because, you know, it's something that happened, but there wasn't necessarily anything to get into. It's all part of the ongoing thing of Abigail managing to find success with the endowment and James doesn't. This is suddenly an opportunity for him to show that, yes, he still has value to the team because his knowledge is the only thing that's going to make a difference in terms of helping out Tabitha with her pregnancy, particularly as we move into the next chapter and all of this has to happen under very stressful circumstances. Like, at the best of times, particularly with the medical acumen and equipment that they have, Back during that time, it's a fraught business being pregnant and surviving all of that. Mm. So his skill 
even if he's only assisted with this sort of thing in the past, the fact that he is the person most likely to be calm under fire, so to speak, literally under Mm. fire, considering Mm. the presence of the Southern Cross, there isn't really anybody else that could do what he does in this moment. And even though he talks about, you know, that he's feeling surplus to requirements, this success with Tabitha's pregnancy does offer him some small respite into showing that there are things that he can do that nobody else can. This is not the first time that we've seen James be really, really good at helping someone when they're going through something medical, physical, and that it's a sort of high tension situation and they feel stressed and panicked and scared. And he is there to provide not only medical assistance, but a reassuring, steady voice. Because we saw him help Lucy through her panic yeah. attack. And that was even before he was trained as a doctor. That was just exactly. his own yeah. experience With prior to. Yeah. This is something that he is adept at, and it's another insight to, like, he's good at being knowledgeable and having the facts, but that's not all he's good at. He is emotionally intuitive at being a reassuring voice in these situations because he doesn't lie to her, doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, I've only assisted. This will be a first for both of us. One could argue that James's lack of personal experience was included because it's its own trope. Though the stakes are already high because of the running combat, the writer's love of adding complications by having the attending helper not be an experienced doctor or midwife is a common intensifier. And if we're going to have any pregnancy tropes, this is at least not a problematic one. I have seen it many times. With horses. With horses. He is joining himself with her in terms of we're in this together and you're not alone. That's the main thing. Like the fact that when he's talking with Lucy, he is saying, like, breathe, breathe with me. Stop taking three breaths when you only need one. He's giving advice, but he is emphasizing his presence to help them not feel alone and the fact that she's scared but he reminds her why what they're about to try is worthwhile is that in a few moments there's going to be another person in the world and that's how we're going to get through this it's just a wonderful reminder of like as you say it's not just the practical value that he provides it is the emotional value it is the heart that he so often forgets is within himself after the interdimensional problem that we saw with abigail closing the window and the profound scale that all of that implies this problem is a little bit more manageable yeah you may have spectral doorways to other dimensions spilling out all manner of creatures under control but even if you have magic eyes that can help you tangle with something like that a woman going to labor is always going to tap into a familiar primal response the fundamental elements of the human experience are still there at the heart of this interdimensional journey and james is able to help with that and that is not nothing 
they've often talked about the idea of giving birth in a post-apocalyptic environment being a not-too-subtle emblem of hope even in the face of despair. And the fact that James' success at delivering Tabitha's baby has personal relevance and not just thematic relevance is part Mm. of what makes this moment as important as it does, at least from the standpoint of Steamheart as a story. That is fundamentally what I feel a lot of the human experience is, is that when we buckle and falter in the face of what present and past generations are doing and have done, hope lies with the future. The thing that often comes forward whenever anyone watches, like, I haven't seen the second one, but the first A Quiet Place, when you sort of see the scenario and then you see that the mother is pregnant and you just think like, why, why, how, this, how could you possibly like make this work? And for a lot of people, they sort of get hung up on the logistics and they're like, you know, like this really makes no sense. Why would you do that? And the answer is simple because this is what the story is about. It's Mm. about the fact that even in a scenario that feels as if like you can't live life, that people are are always going to push and try to live. And life has these risks and life does mean the propagation of new life. That's how it works. If you stop trying, then you might as well already be dead. Precisely. Of course, as I edit all this, It's the weekend after Roe v. Wade was struck down by the Supreme Court. And talking about pregnancy might have a bitter flavor in all our mouths. I'm going to get into a longer tangent about the current state of affairs in the outro. But for now, I will only add, having a child was Tabitha's choice. The risk of having a child, of raising a child, this was a course she decided on in spite of not having a partner to raise it with. And to all those people out there that were responsible for taking that choice away, I say, get in the fucking sea. Finally, chapter 20. The first time in this story that we have an action scene taking up most of the chapter, the likes of which we have seen in Tiger's Eye Arlington. But a lot of what we've seen already has been people talking in rooms rather than something dramatic and dynamic happening and i wasn't Y'all like sure. fury road yeah exactly that was top on my list in terms of one of these things being emblematic of a piece of media that we all very much love i was worried that i wasn't going to have a lot to say about this at first but as i started to put down my thoughts for the outline i realized that there is definitely stuff to unpack even though it's primarily action much in the way that there is a lot to unpack in Fury Road itself. From the very beginning, we are clearly setting up the action scene by describing the arrival of the Southern Cross as being not unlike the war boys from Fury Road, with some further aspects making us think of, say, the Ravagers from Firefly, or even if you want to go back further, the Wild Hunt from Fairy Tales. Part of what makes this significant is that unlike any previous opponent, the Southern Cross seems to bridge the gap by giving us human opponents that are so warped that they don't care about the same kinds of things as previous opponents. 
the Wendigo, they're animalistic, they're hunting for food. And in the case of Tremaine's troops, or fanatically loyal to this despicable human being, they are still fighting for an ideal, and they have homes and families that they care about. The Southern Cross, however, seemed to have given in to the chaos of death and despair of the last decade, and as a result, have become a representation of it. They chose a new ideal to make sense of their world, which doesn't actually seem to make long-term sense in terms of building a future, and that makes them scare us unlike any other. We cannot predict what they will choose to care about and where their lines are. They say they embrace death, and that makes them a dangerous opponent. Picking up on that last part specifically, the Southern Cross also does come across as vaguely Thanos-like, specifically the traditional comics conception of the character. The delivery of, we walk with death, we love him, feels laden with the disquieting, romantic and everything that entails conception of their warped fixation. It is a love of destruction that is antithetical and unthinkable when compared against the nurturing love we have seen others express in New Century. Their assembling of different trophies and weapons appropriated from conquered peoples is an embodiment of people like this only being capable of taking, never growing. There are some things that we hear in the narration that Raven offers when he gives us that first description that suggests that they are crafting things themselves. It's not just this assemblage of mohawk-like robbed trophies. They are creating, but it's with this intention of destruction. There is nothing to these people that feels like they have any concept of doing anything other than bulldozing what the rest of this world is trying to cultivate. The metaphor of calling certain destructive groups a cancer, we we see that a lot in terms of modern discourse, but in terms of symbolism, the Southern Cross by your own description of them, is almost a representation of cancer. It's something that is alive, but destroys everything else it comes across, making more of the world into it, or destroying it utterly. If humanity's tendency is to make changes to the natural world, then the Southern Cross is the ultimate extreme of that. Not merely destructive, but self-destructive. picking up on what you were saying, entities like the Southern Cross in these sort of settings are in some ways more frightening than the more obviously monstrous looking creatures that bring society to this downfall. Because the sort of obvious response to this is, well, the solution is that we have to band together and face this. The existence and emergence of people like this is a direct refutation of that that says no we can't and as you were alluding to a second ago the wendigo tremaine's followers or even just like other people that we've come across like 
the racists starting the riot in D.C. or raiders like Virgil and Carl were supposed to be. They're all doing what they're doing out of a desire to survive. The Southern Cross doesn't care if it survives. Mm. They really have no end goal. They, they are just unrestrained id. Leading into that, this is part of the reason why the action of this chapter is made tense in unexpected ways. In the thing that we keep on referring it back to, Theory Road, the heroes of that story had less of a distinct edge because of the sheer amount of resources that the enemy can bring to bear in comparison to the limited resources of Furiosa and her allies. Here, it would seem that Team Steam has more of an edge, what with the Steamcraft, the fact that they have very talented heroes, good at shooting things, not to mention that for all that the war rig was designed to take a lot of punishment, it's still a vehicle made by Joe's people, and the boys are experienced taking down other vehicles with the aid of their own. Even if the Southern Cross somehow knew that Steamheart existed, they still have only horses and horse-drawn carriages, and they have no idea how to fight a one-of-a-kind vehicle like Steamheart. Having said that, they also don't care. More cautious soldiers or leaders might hesitate when taking on an unknown quantity like this, but here their brokenness is the advantage. Willing to endlessly throw themselves at their prey, death or success being an equally welcomed outcome. By the end, the only reason the combat is over is because they have either killed all pursuers or disabled them and their means of travel to the point where they cannot pursue. In the meantime, mm. James is trying to successfully deliver a baby, which means that Steamheart isn't able to get up to top speed, which might allow them to run away from the caravans of the Southern Cross. And then, on top of all of that, because of the seriousness of the situation, Abigail puts herself directly into danger, once more being true to herself by not being able to stand there and do nothing. And that suddenly opens up a completely different can of worms in terms of how well is she going to do here? She's got a deficiency with fighting because of her eye. And even though Abigail's actions are selfless, it still puts Annie in the unenviable position of potentially having to carry out Thomas's final order. It scares her and us, adding further weight to the proceedings. Recently, during the Fallen Kingdom School of Movies episode, Sharon had a number of things to say about stories that have no stakes other than death, and this one chapter shows us a complicated cocktail of stakes that includes death, but is more than just will our heroes survive, which is good, since we're only halfway through the story, meaning the answer is almost certainly yes. That makes the standard stakes rather toothless in this moment. On top of that, the upcoming chapters of Part 3 include a whole mess of not-death stakes, but that's getting ahead of the game. Back to our off-road warriors. Even without the modern technology of the post-apocalypse of Mad Max, this chapter very much captures the essence of that movie. Not merely the chase scenes and explosions, but the emphasis on both death and life. We see pretty early on in the chase that if they didn't have to worry for and adjust for a woman being in labor on board, Steamheart would be able to outrun these raiders with a lot more ease. By fighting over the birth of a new person coming into the world, as James puts it, 
The sequence becomes a tug of war between a group who find it easy to smash and uproot with no rhyme or cause and the persistent nurturing of something small and fragile, but all the more essential to the growth and survival of the human race. It's this feeling that you often will put yourself in a position of vulnerability by caring, but the things that are worth doing aren't worth doing because they're easy. That's why this still gets my blood pumping as an action sequence, because it is this desperate fight to do the right thing. You feel what is on the line from a newborn baby to Abigail and her endowment and even to the integrity of Steamheart herself. The whole conflict focuses in on one thing, which is Steamheart and the people on it. But it becomes this multi-tiered thing happening on all sides at once. It's simple to follow while elaborate in construction, and it's as terrific an action scene that New Century has had up till now. And I remember at the time was a nightmare for Alex to put together, like as an <laughs> like a piece of audio editing. So mm-hmm. it pays off. This is the culmination. This is the big dramatic set piece that closes out part two. If it were a TV show, this might be like the season midpoint finale. It's like episode five of a 13 episode season. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. This chapter, aside from their success against dealing with a dangerous opponent, it's also symbolic of everybody crystallizing together as a team. Not always to the fight, but at least to the rising action. Yes, there is the fallout, which is going to be dealt with in later chapters. But, you know, that's just one of the aspects of telling a story is that actions have consequences. And big moments like this are what lead to interesting pathos down the line. It means that part two ends with the feeling of power and hope, much like we felt at the end of launch day. We've gotten past our first low point with the deaths of the Arlingtons, but the closing of the first Windor and the success of Team Steam against the Southern Cross sets us up well for the next arc of our story. From a practical standpoint, like as a writer, I think it was also important that we have an action scene of this scale at this point of the journey, because... We have this group of people setting out as they are, and I don't think it's giving much away to suggest that the full team is not quite assembled yet. An excellently made point for sure, but hold on to your socks. The rest of the team is coming shortly. It's quite, I think, necessary to show that the people who set out like at the start were not doing so on a fool's errand they have enough to get to where they need to get to fighting as they are. That's why I think it works as well as it does, because we get to see what the Avengers are able to accomplish when the Hulk isn't there. And Mm. that's all I will say. (laughs) If part one ends with a feeling of untarnished optimism at the outset of a journey, then part two is the successful overcoming of roadblocks along the way. It acknowledges the strain and difficulty in moving past the things that can go wrong at the start of a journey and throw you off course before you've even begun. If you can face the first setbacks that can make you question if you're up to the task, then you're on the right track. Yeah, 
also your reference to Avengers there. You know, we spend so much time referring to other pieces of media in order to help us talk about this story. We forget that way back in the day, this was the Avengers, so to speak, of New Century. And so therefore, if we want to look at this thematically, then we could potentially say that this action set piece is like the equivalent of Captain America, Iron Man, and our two members of S.H.I.E.L.D. coming together to defeat Loki, I guess at least through the first third of that particular movie. So I mm. like I like your uh, your invoking of uh, we don't quite have the Hulk yet, or alternately, uh, at that point in the story, Thor hadn't shown up yet either. So, yeah. Yeah, we've smashed through the Southern Cross and also smashed through part two. We're making it, Greg. I don't think that makes us Laverne and Shirley necessarily, but you know. Uh, leave it to the fan fiction writers; they can decide. <laughs> I mean, they already know that we like singing, so the uh, the whole thing about like you know <laughs> us us making music together. Uh, we're just waiting for the inevitable through the window, the musical episode. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, exactly. I've still got a ways to go. But you'll see the next outline shortly because I got it about halfway done. And oh, my God, we were already talking about how the experience of Steamheart is finally an opportunity for us to talk about a lot of the things we've been holding back on for the last two years. We're about to get to the chapter that we've been waiting for for so long. (sighs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we're, uh, well, okay, not just the introduction of a character that we have so thoroughly missed, but, you know, we've got uh, got a little spice coming up on the table, too, so <laughs> that'll be interesting to talk about. All right, let's stop, like, doing what we always do and barely constraining ourselves <laughs> and close this window. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Thank you for continuing to follow us during these... Um, difficult times and we'll see you next time on another trip through the wind door take care difficult times yeah the timing of this episode is synchronistic in ways i don't like regardless of any personal issues i'm dealing with the bombshell of june 24th fills me with a sense of dread for the world not just for how this sets us back as a society but that this is just a herald of how bad it can get. We knew that 2020 wasn't going to be the end, but this still feels like being hit when we're already down. I hope this episode and future episodes give some small amount of entertainment, because we're going to need fuel for what comes next. Earlier in the episode, Toby said the things that are worth doing aren't worth doing because they are easy. And it feels exhausting when this latest blow makes things even harder. We're not fighting Wendigo, but the combined forces of people like Tremaine and people bearing more resemblance to the Southern Cross than we would like. Me and mine, 
with strength and support to all of you and yours. A song that was originally supposed to be a show of support during Pride Month is now a rallying cry for all of us against aggressive assholes. So until next time, this is me and Lily Allen saying, Fuck you! Inside your tiny mind Then look a bit harder Cause we're so uninspired So sick and tired Of all the hatred you harbor So you say It's not okay to be gay Well I think you're just evil You're just some racist Who can't tie my laces Your point of view is medieval Get slew. No one wants your opinion.